Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 329, Dr. Joshua Sijuwadi on Divine Identity. Dr. Joshua Sijuwadi is a visiting lecturer at the London School of Theology. He earned a Master's in Philosophy of Religion from the University of Birmingham and a PhD from the University of York with a dissertation on the metaphysics of the Trinity. His research interests include metaphysics, philosophy of religion, and analytic theology, and he's published in journals such as Religious Studies, Theologica, and the Heathrop Journal. But he's here with us today to talk about his 2020 article entitled Elucidating Divine Identity. Dr. Sijuwadi, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Hi, Dale. It's great to be here. I'm really privileged, actually, to be on, on the program. So thank you very much. Why don't we just get to know you a bit? Could you tell us something about your Christian background and then eventually how did you become interested in analytic theology? Yes, great. So um, my story sort of stems from starting from around 2011 uh, when I actually became committed to Christianity. So prior to that time, I was brought up in a Christian home. Um, I went to Christian school throughout and I always heard about the gospel, but it didn't really mean anything to me. So even though I was dragged to church, kicking and screaming, when I was there, I wasn't really listening. So the gospel wasn't a live life. But it wasn't until around 2011 that I had a religious experience. Um, And that religious experience completely changed my life. I actually believed that God was speaking to me, that I needed to change my life, that I needed to now devote myself fully to him. And so after that experience, I literally had a change within my heart. It was like a regeneration moment. Mm. And so after that experience, I then became just sort of enthralled by the gospel, enthralled by Christianity, and and specifically by theology. I really wanted to know more about God. And so I decided to go and study um, at the London School of Theology. So I decided to do an undergraduate in theology. And then after I was actually at the London School of Theology, I discovered um, apologetics specifically from William Lane Craig. Um, So I was watching his debates and reading some of his writings, and I fell in love with this sort of analytical approach to doing theology and doing religion in general, how you can actually have a rational sort of basis to the beliefs that you have in Christianity. And so I decided I wanted to explore this a little bit more. And so I started reading a little bit deeper, discovered uh, people like Alvin Plantinga, and then eventually Richard Swinburne. And so after I started going deeper into their works, I said, actually, I want to go even deeper in an academic sense. I wanted to go and now study specifically for a master's and then hopefully to go on to a PhD. And so after I finished the LST, I then decided to go and study at the University of Birmingham. Um, But I also, funny enough, I got married during that period. And so um, I realized that I I needed to sort of put food on the table, so I needed to go and work as well. Mm -hmm. So I decided to also train to be a teacher, a high school teacher. So the crazy person that I am, I decided to go and do a teacher training course called in, in the UK, I don't know how it is in the USA, but the UK it's called a PGCE, which trains you to be a teacher. So I decided to acquire a PGCE, but also to do my master's at the same time. 
And so somehow I got through it in a year, full-time masters and full-time PGC. Mm. I do really believe it was the grace of God who enabled me to do that. And so I, I trained up to be a teacher and then I also got my masters as well. But that desire to go further in academic studies was still there. And I said, I wanted to go and get a PhD. So I um, went and enrolled on a PhD course at the University of York under David Efford. And I decided that I really wanted to focus specifically on the doctrine of the Trinity. But again, to the side of this study, I was also saying, again, I need to continue putting food on the table. So I need to go and work as a teacher as well. So I need to go and work now in a high school. So I decided again, with my crazy line of thinking, to go and study for my PhD full time, but also to work full time as a, a high school teacher. And so that was an interesting experience. Wow. Did you have to relocate up to York then? No. So um, thankfully, David Efford, um, who very sadly passed away a year ago, he was very, very kind man. And he said that actually, he, he, it's fine. I don't need to be at all involved in the community at York. I can just study in a distance learning format. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't need to go up to York um, only a few times just to do some examinations. But outside of that, I was studying for my PhD at home and then just doing Skype calls um, with David and him supervising me through that format. So I was doing the PhD and I was also doing, uh, I was working full time and took the three years. So I was able to finish it on time. So I finished the, the PhD uh, last year, so 2020. And I was working as well. And God was just grateful towards me in enabling me to be able to complete it. And so I completed my PhD and my thesis was focused on defending Richard Swinburne's conception of the Trinity, his specific model of the Trinity. And I was trying to defend it against what I term the tritheism objection, specifically the objection that uh, the doctrine of the Trinity as conceptualized by Swinburne is a tritheistic conceptualization of God. And I was trying to show specifically within this thesis that if we correctly understand uh, Swinburne's model of the Trinity, and if we also extend it and modify it in light of contemporary metaphysical notions, we can actually bring it in line with the conception of monotheism that was found within Second Temple Judaism and also within the pro-Nicene trajectory within the fourth century. And so um, it was great. I also had Swinburne um, examining my thesis, which was nice as well. So I, I feel like if it passes his rigorous analysis, then, then maybe I've done something that, that is okay and can see the light of day. So yeah, I was happy that to finish it. And now I'm just sort of trying to write as many papers as I can and, and develop further lines of thoughts related to, to what I studied for my PhD. Well, you're a hardworking man. <laughs> That's, uh, <laughs> Thank you've, you. you've clawed your way through an incredible amount of work in the last 10 years or so. Yeah, very interesting. A Swinburne, boy, that's a whole other topic we could burn a whole episode on, but um, sure. hoping to have you back in the next couple of weeks to talk about some of your publications more specifically on the Trinity, so maybe that'll come up a little bit there. Uh, I've been, been interested in him on the Trinity for a long time. Gee, I think I read his 1994 book back in about 1997 or 98 or something like that. And one of the things that got me thinking on the topic actually was trying to decide if I thought that was tritheism or not. But anyway, today we're going to talk about another well-regarded uh, senior heavyweight scholar who's been very influential in the theological world. And strangely enough, I would say a lot more influential than Richard Swinburne has been. And this is Dr. Richard Bauckham, who's an expert on ancient religious texts. And particularly in his book called Jesus and the God of Israel, 
he suggested that you can look at anywhere in the New Testament and you will see a Christology of divine identity, where Jesus belongs to the identity of God. Tell us how you got interested in this, and let's discuss, you know, why is it influential in a lot of contemporary evangelical apologetics and theology? Yes, so I got interested in Borkham's writing, specifically for my PhD thesis, where in one of the chapters I was trying to look at and understand the nature of Second Temple Judaic monotheism. And Borkham, specifically in a Christian context, has been very influential, as you said, in sort of trying to put forward an idea that we need to correct our understanding of monotheism because we assume it's to do with quantitative monotheism or quantitative aspects when actually there's a qualitative notion of monotheism which for him was the correct understanding of monotheism found within the second temple period so Borkham in his writings tries to distinguish between quantitative monotheism and qualitative monotheism so what he tries to show is that the new testament writers were trying to put forward the latter view of monotheism and not the former view. The former view of quantitative monotheism is the idea that we only have one deity in our worldview. And so we are monotheists because we believe there's one deity. But Borkham believes, and other writers as well, such as Hurtado, have tried to argue for the position that that was not the Judaic mindset, that they did believe in other deities existing. But what they were trying to say is that we were monotheists in a qualitative sense because we believe only one of those deities, Yahweh, is the sole creator, sole ruler, and being only worthy of worship. And so we are monotheists because we only believe in one God, and God would be the term for that being, that deity who is the sole creator, sole ruler, and being worthy of worship. And so we are monotheists because of the qualities of this specific deity who we worship, Yahweh. We are not monotheists because we believe there's only one deity in our worldview, which seems to be the common view for some individuals, but for a lot of scholars, they've tried to move away from that view and more towards this qualitative monotheism. And so there is only one God, according to the Jews, because only one of those deities has those unique identifying attributes. This deity, Yahweh, is in a category of his own. He doesn't share this category with any other deity given that he is the sole creator, sole ruler, and being worthy of worship. And so he's, Borkham would use the term, transcendently unique. And so that's why they are monotheists in that sort of qualitative sense. When I was researching about Swinburne's specific model, I was trying to tick the box of saying, before we go into the pro-Nicene trajectory in the fourth century and look for what monotheism meant for the theologians working in that trajectory, I wanted to first understand and look at the nature of monotheism within the Second Temple period, because that's the foundation of Trinitarianism. We need to first understand what the individuals who had the revelation of God given to them through and in Christ and what they meant by monotheism, because that should be the epistemic foundation and framework in which we understand Trinitarianism. And so if it doesn't fit with what their understanding of monotheism was, then we need to question what monotheism is that we are trying to defend within Trinitarian thought. And so I was really interested in looking at specific individuals who have tried their best to explicate and develop a line of thinking about what monotheism was for the Second Temple Jews. And so I was looking at Borkham. I was also looking at individuals such as Larry Hurtado and N.T. Wright, but in a sort of smaller aspect, trying to understand what they 
also conceptualized monotheism to be for the Second Temple Jews. And I found Borkham's idea very interesting. And so as we sort of unpack it, I can sort of go deeper into the nature of what he took the monotheism to be for the Second Temple Jews. And I would say that it's been quite influential, his sort of line of thinking for evangelicals and other individuals, because it puts forward an idea of monotheism, which, if I'm honest, fits very well with the high Christology of the 4th and 5th century and the ecumenical councils. So evangelical theologians who are defending an orthodox understanding of the two natures of Christ, of the Trinity, they would, in the same way as me, want to see that their view and the conciliar view is grounded upon an authentic witness that we find within the Second Temple period. And Borkham has put forward an idea which allows us to have a high Christology from the earliest period. And so individuals who you might read, such as James D.G. Dunn and Bart Ehrman, they've argued for more of a developmental view of Christology, where there was a low Christology that developed in later periods to a high Christology. But Borkham and other individuals like Larry Hurtado have tried to argue for an early high Christology, where we can actually say from the New Testament period, the Second Temple period, we have Christ being understood to be divine in a certain way. And so there wasn't a development of this line of thinking, but there was actually just a, I would say, a clarification of what it meant to be divine in the 4th and 5th century and the other councils as well. And so evangelicals who are wanting to base things upon scripture and upon that period of thought would want to find a Christology that's high, and Borkham is trying to deliver that to them. He's also kind of sidestepping all of the traditional and very difficult language. As I discussed in my Borkham paper from some years ago, he seems to assume, like a lot of contemporary, particularly British theologians, that somehow the ancient creedal language has become outdated or less meaningful to us, and you know, why not just say this instead? So he, he thinks he's expressing, I guess, the same thing that orthodoxy was trying to get at with its traditional language, but I guess he thinks it's clearer or more relevant. It seems to me that a lot of the appeal of it is that... There's a popular evangelical view, I guess I'd call it pop theology, that Jesus just is God, like they're just one and the same, like as if Jesus is God's proper name. And that's a view that you find among the laity, and they do want to say Jesus is God, whatever that means. And yet in scholarship, it looks like it would be a mistake to just collapse Jesus and God and think there's no difference between them, because the texts seem to presuppose a lot of differences between them. So when we come along and say that Jesus belongs to the divine identity, it kind of suggests that Jesus is God himself, but also, well, since he just belongs to the divine identity or to who God is, well, maybe so does the Father. So it sounds like saying the same thing as Jesus is God, but yet Jesus is also someone other than God, that is, other than God the Father or other than the Trinity. The ambiguity of it seems to me like it just fits with what evangelicals want to say coming into the game. It sounds more sophisticated than just saying Jesus is God and, he, and he's also somebody else, you know, God himself, but not. So, as you mentioned earlier in scholarship, there had been a lot of scholars committed to a developmental model where Jesus starts off just a man early on, maybe in the gospel according to Mark and the other synoptics. And then as time goes on, ideas about Jesus being divine kind of develop in a, in a stronger direction. And Bauckham is one of these early high Christology 
people pushing back and saying, no, no, it's divine Christology, it's Jesus being God from the very beginning. Uh, okay, well, at least belonging to the divine identity. So then whatever you find in John is essentially going to be the same Christology that you find in Mark or Paul or Luke. So it's been widely taken up. To my dismay, it has not been widely analyzed or critically thought about. In other words, I usually find scholars just repeating this language and not worrying too much about what it means or whether it really is saying the same thing as you know the ancient creedal formulations. It just hey, this great scholar says this, why not just run with this? Okay, but as you were getting into this, you started to realize that there was some controversy about this divine identity language? Yes, exactly that. I was looking into the issue, and I was trying to understand myself, exactly, I think, from an analytic philosophy and theology perspective, where we like to sort of analyze sentences and statements and propositions and, and say, you know, we need to be as clear as possible. When I was trying to understand what we actually meant when we use the term divine identity, I couldn't really understand it and grasp what Borkin was trying to get at. And I saw this really well put in your article where you analyzed and said, okay, let's try and understand what he's saying, what he means by the term divine identity. So when I was reading your paper, your article, I sort of was led to a similar position as yourself in your conclusion that there seems to be an ambiguity when Borkham is using the term identity. And so I was trying to analyze this in the same sort of way that you were, and, and I was led to the position that it seems to be on the one hand that he's using identity in the normal sense of the word, which was numerical identity, so the identity relation that an entity bears to itself and it alone. But that seems to be problematic, as you've shown in your paper as well, that it seems to be the case that if that is so, and we're using this relation in the sense that Jesus is part of the divine identity, in the sense that he's numerically identical to God, then it seems to be the case that it transgresses Leibniz's law. And Leibniz's law states that if, for example, X and Y are identical, then whatever is true of X must also be true of Y. But it's quite clear in the New Testament that Jesus does things and things are predicated of him that are very different from God. And so that means then that according to Leibniz's law, they are numerically distinct instead of numerically identical. Yeah. Let's just pause and give a couple of examples like, uh, you know, God sent his only son, but Jesus did not send his only son. Or uh, Jesus yeah. nowadays serves as the mediator between God and humans, but God doesn't serve as mediator between God and humans. So. Yes. Or God exactly. says, uh, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus did not say that at that time. So if you're saying Jesus just is God, then they, they couldn't ever differ in any way because the one thing just is the other. It looks like you've just collapsed them. Yeah. So when you have sort of a numerical identity relation, it seems to be the case that everything, as we were just saying with Leibniz's law, everything that is said of Jesus must also be said of God. The same way that if you're taking, let's say, I love my comic books, so if we were taking Superman and Clark Kent, mm -hmm. anything that's said of Superman is true of Superman is also true of Clark Kent because they are just the same thing. And so if Jesus is numerically identical to God, then everything that's true of Jesus, him dying, him being weak at certain moments of his life, must also be true of God as well. And so this seems to be problematic. And so I don't think Borkham would want to go to that conclusion, but it seems to be the case that when we analyze what he is saying, that seems to be one of the lines of thought that he's arguing for. 
one reason why it seems like that's what he's saying is that he gives arguments that, you know, only God is the creator, but Jesus is the creator. So then if only God is the creator, then anybody who's the creator just is God. There's an identity statement in there. Exactly. So if Jesus is the creator and only God is a creator, it just follows that God just is Jesus and Jesus just is God. So he seems to be giving arguments like that, which is strange because it looks like if he's a Trinitarian, even just by being Trinitarian, he'll think there are differences between Jesus and God. So in my article, I'm like struggling, you know, can he mean that? What if he means something else? Exactly. Yes. So that's what I was seeing with your article, which was very helpful in sort of highlighting this issue. There seems to be another line of thought that he's arguing for as well which seems to be incompatible with the first one. And it's the idea that there, in some manner, might be a compositional relation in play here, that Jesus is part of the divine identity, but in the sense of him being a proper part of God, that he is one of the parts, and maybe there might be other parts, we could take the Father and and the Holy Spirit to be parts of God. And so they compose this entity called God. And so he seems to assume in a way a social Trinitarian view and sort of a part whole relation between Jesus and God. And so the identity statement that he's saying might not be a numerical identity statement, but it might be a compositional statement mm-hmm. where there is a mirrorology mir- taking place here. And so Jesus is part of God, but in a mirrorological sense. But then again, this, if it is the line of thought that he's arguing for, and again, it seems to be the case that he's assuming some form of social Trinitarianism that I would probably like, and I think you did as well in your article, to Jürgen Moltmann. And so there seems to be this case where God is identified as a triune being that has Jesus and the Father as proper parts. Mm -hmm. So this will be problematic if he takes this mirrorological view because it doesn't seem to have continuity with later Trinitarianism, which assumes an understanding of God as being non-composite. And so if God is taken to be a composite entity in the New Testament and in the Second Temple period, so that we can make sense of this idea of divine identity, then it cannot fit with the fourth century and latter century view that God is a simple entity. That means he is non-composite. And so it might fit with modern day social trinitarianism but it won't fit within historical understanding of god which is predicated on this idea of divine simplicity specifically in the conciliar periods i mean even if you don't accept a you know radical traditional idea of divine simplicity if you just talk to a lot of trinitarian theologians and you say oh okay so you're saying that jesus is or the son is a part of god they would say no 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 you know each one of them is all of god or something like that it seems like the tradition's just hostile to parts, even apart from simplicity, I think. Yes, yeah. I, th- I think that is so. And so, yeah, you can even argue it exactly in sort of the more easier sense where people just say, yes, we don't want to identify Jesus as a part of God. And so God is composed in this fashion. And it's sort of like you can picture the Transformers sort of, you know, putting Jesus as one part and the Father as another part. That just doesn't seem to be the understanding of theologians when they say, what God's nature is. They won't want to take this sort of compositional view. And so, yes, there is that sort of idea. And there is, if someone was to assume simplicity, you'll also have a problem with that as well. But then what we have in front of us are these sort of options on the table that Borkham is giving us. We can either go with the numerical identity view, but then have a few problems with it transgressing Leibniz's law. But then we can also have this compositional view that he's arguing for as well, 
but then we'll have problems with understanding what it means for Jesus to be related to God. And we might have to assume this part whole relation, which is problematic. And so these positions independently are problematic. And together, <laughs> I don't think someone will want to say Borkham is meaning numerical identity, but he's also meaning composition. Unless you to hold to some view called composition as identity, which is a very controversial view in contemporary metaphysics. Yeah. He wasn't going off of that kind of literature. He was reading continental philosopher talking about human persons and personal identity, you know, being the same person as. Exactly. And so, yeah, I don't think you'll be happy with that line of thought as well. And so it seems to be the case that where, where we're sort of led to is this sort of systematic ambiguity, which you noted, where it seems to be that we have these understandings and these ways to interpret the notion of divine identity, but they are problematic but that's where we are left at. And so I thought it upon myself to try and clarify as best as I could what a possible interpretation of this notion of divine identity could be understood to be. I'm not saying in, in what I was arguing for that this is what Borkham actually meant or this is what the New Testament writers were meaning. I really don't believe that they had this in their thoughts, analytic philosophy and essence and all those things that I was trying to utilize. But I was trying to put forward a logically possible model, a way to understand this that is not problematic logically, but it's also clear and can be utilized in a fruitful sense. And so it was sort of a model and a model doesn't always necessarily have to be what the thing is itself, but it's just a way to understand how this thing could be possible and a way to hold to it without falling into any sort of inconsistency. Okay, so you're trying to give some analytic help to Bauckham's suggestion that we should understand the New Testament to be teaching a Christology of divine identity. You're saying, here's a way we could interpret that, which would yeah. maybe be well-motivated and make sense and fit in with other things that we want to say. Yes, that's exactly it. In my other writings, which we'll speak about in the future, this is sort of the, the, the way that I like to go about things. I'm, I, I like to look at the field of contemporary metaphysics and say, what are some helpful notions that are working really well in this specific area? And it's generally, you know, they've been generally taken on board as being useful, coherent concepts and are fruitful in that they illuminate certain areas of philosophy. And I say, okay, let me utilize that specific notion in the theological context. So I'm trying to sort of go with this analytic theology movement and trying to utilize the methodology of analytic theology. I'm trying to say, let me use the tools and techniques of analytic philosophy, the best tools that we can sort of use, and let's apply them to these theological issues. And maybe they can come to help those who are in need. And it seemed to be the case that divine identity was something that was in need and could be helped in a way by utilizing these notions that are found within the wider field of contemporary metaphysics. When the Trantis podcast returns, Dr. Sejuwadi looks to contemporary metaphysics for help in understanding this divine identity.
Okay, well, let's talk about how in your article in the Heathrop Journal from 2020 called Elucidating Divine Identity, say, hey, why not understand Bauckham's Christology of Divine Identity in terms of a certain conception of essence? Yes. So the notion of essence that I was trying to utilize is a very important notion that's played quite a large role in contemporary metaphysics. Now, essence is a term that theologians themselves have used, but I'm using it in a specific way that's being grounded upon the work of someone called Kit Fine. Now, Kit Fine is a very famous metaphysician, and he's played a big part in rejuvenating the notion of essence and specifically the Aristotelian conception of it that he has defended in his writings. Now, just taking a sort of a back step and trying to understand what essence is, Essence is a notion which is utilized in two ways, or it's sort of conceived of in two ways in contemporary metaphysics. It's either conceived in a modal fashion, or it's conceived in a non-modal fashion. Now, I'm going to define these terms just so we can understand what I'm trying to get at. So the modal conception of essence is the idea that an entity, so a given entity that has an essence, and what I mean by an essence is just a collection of essential properties. So an entity has an essence, but this essence that it possesses is composed of essential properties that the entity must have in order to exist. So for example, if we were to look at a table, one of the essential properties of a table is being spatial. If it was to lack that property, then it would not exist. So it's to do with modalities. It's, it's using the term can and must. So it's to do with modality, specifically to do with the possibility and necessity. So the modal conception is a very popular understanding of essence. So you'll see this throughout actually analytic theology. So individuals such as Swinburne, if you look at his coherence of theism, he would try and argue that God has essential properties such as omniscience, omnipotence, perfect goodness. And if God was to lack one of these properties, then he would not exist. And so it's to do with this idea of necessity, that God or any entity must have this essential property in order to exist. Yeah, and in, not so much in Swinburne, but in a lot of other recent Christian philosophy, especially influenced by Plantinga, they like to expound this in terms of possible worlds. So a thing's essential property is one which it has in any possible world in which it exists. Exactly, yes. Which is just to say that it can't exist without having that property. Exactly. So this possible world sort of semantics is very popular at the moment, and people will sort of cash it out in that way. Um, and so you have theologians and philosophers of religion, exactly like you said, like Alvin Plantinga, and sort of in a wider sense, sort of in metaphysics, you'll see people like Saul Kripke and Hilary Putnam who have used this view of modality and of essence. So this idea that an essential property is something that an object must possess in order to exist. And if it lacked it, then it would not exist. And so you have this modal conception. But then Kit Fine came along in the mid-90s, specifically in his paper called Essence and Modality, where he was trying to question our understanding of essence and the correctness of conceptualizing it in this modal fashion, which is to do with necessity. And so the way that he was arguing against it, as you'll see sort of in a wider sense in other areas of philosophy, is by putting forward counterexamples. And so he put forward quite a few counterexamples to show that actually the notion of necessity is not a sufficient condition for a thing having a, an essential property. It's a necessary condition, 
but it's not a sufficient condition. If you have, for example, Socrates, Socrates will have the necessary property of being distinct from the Eiffel Tower. That will be a necessary property. He must have this in order to exist as Socrates. But it doesn't seem to be an essential property as well. And why he was sort of trying to show that through this is because we seem to have this intuitive notion of essence where something is an essential property if it's actually to do with what that entity is. What he was trying to say was, actually, when we use the term essence, we're trying to get at the nature of an individual. Like its fundamental kind. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't seem to be of the nature of Socrates to be an entity that's distinct from the Eiffel Tower. It doesn't really get down to the nitty gritty bit. So if I was to ask you, who and what is Socrates? You're going to tell me many things about him, like he was a human being, but you're probably not going to go and tell me that he was distinct from the Eiffel Tower. So even though that's a necessary property, it's not an essential property. Because what Kit Fine was trying to show is that the correct way to understand essence and essential properties is to do with definition. And so he put forward the definitional conception of essential properties and essence. And what he was meaning by that term was that an essence or an essential property of an object is to do with their real definition. So if I was to define an entity, for example, Socrates, and let's say we go with an Aristotelian view of humanity, in his definition, we will have a rational animal. That seems to be something that's to do with Socrates. But him being distinct from the Eiffel Tower doesn't really have anything to do with him. It seems to be an irrelevant property when we're trying to define what he is. And so an essential property is something that an entity has, but it has it because of its definition, because of what it is. There's another uh, traditional sort of example. I, I think it's been a long time since I've read Fine, but I don't know, this might come up in there somewhere. I can't remember. There's a property called risibility, which means the ability to laugh or the ability to find something funny. You might think that if someone is a rational being, then necessarily they will also have risibility the ability to find something funny. So then in all possible worlds, Socrates would have that. But to say that he has risibility, it's not really telling you what fundamental sort of thing he is. It's just telling you a feature that kind of rides along with it, if that makes sense or is implied by it. Exactly. So what he's trying to do is break the link between essence or essential properties and necessary properties. Mm -hmm. And the specific link that he's trying to break is an identity link. Because these philosophers such as Kripke, Planting and Putnam believe that necessary properties are essential properties and essential properties are necessary properties. But what he's trying to do is say, actually, essential properties are necessary properties in that if I have an essential property such as being a human, which is an essential property of Socrates and myself, it is necessary to me, but it's not vice versa. All necessary properties aren't essential properties as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you can have some necessary properties that have nothing to do with Socrates and what he is. And so exactly with risibility and with being distinct from the Eiffel Tower, or you might see in the literature about singleton sets being part of a set, doesn't seem to be something that tells us about Socrates himself, mm -hmm. even though it is necessary of Socrates that he's part or a member of this singleton set. And so he breaks this link by 
showing that essence is to do with definitions. And so the essence of an entity is just simply their real definition, what they actually are, what it is to be that entity. That is what an essential property would be. And so if it's not telling me what it is to be that entity, then it's not an essential property, even though it might be a necessary property. Just to clarify, when you say what it is to be that entity, I take it again that it's a kind membership. So my real definition would be human. You're not exactly saying, you know, what it is to be Dale Tuggy specifically, but it would be what basic natural kind I belong to. Fine didn't really go deeper into sort of kinds. The person that I would sort of point people to to sort of understand this better would be E.J. Lowe, who was defending and sort of further developing Fine's thought on this, where he does go into the idea of kinds. And so he sort of makes a distinction between an individual essence and a general essence. And so part of my real definition, I will have things that fall into my individual essence and things that fall into my general essence. And what I mean by that is when I'm defining, for example, Socrates, part of his general essence would be to be a human. That would be his kind that he falls into. But his individual essence will be things that make him Socrates, things that make him what he is within that kind and sort of individuate him. And so you will need to sort of go a little bit deeper and clarifying and say, yes, part of my real definition will have things that enable me to be part of the kind, but also individuate me within that kind as well. So real definition can have to do with either one. It can have to do yes. with either or both. Okay. Got it. Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. So how do we get some help for Bauckham's divine identity talk out of this? Taking sort of this idea of essence into account, so this non-modal definitional understanding of essence, I then said, actually, I think this can help clarify the term or type of identity that is in play here when we use the term divine identity. So as I was saying before, there's sort of this ambiguity that we see in Borkin's work where it can mean numerical identity or it can mean some form of composition or something like that. But let's put that to the side and say, let's use this notion of essence because philosophers, when they use the term identity, they also, some philosophers such as Kit Fine, would use identity as a synonym for essence and this idea of def definitional essence. And so instead of interpreting identity as the relation of identity, I was trying to show actually, maybe we should interpret identity as essence. And so we use identity in a non-relational sense. Instead, we use it in an essential sense. And so what I was then trying to do in this, this article was to say, okay, let's go with this non-definitional view of, of essence. Let's use the term identity, but when we're using it, we're referring to this non-modal understanding of essence, this definitional understanding. And so what I then did was to say in sort of a step-by-step -step manner, I was trying to say, okay, so what is the definition of God? Now, in the article, I didn't really put forward, I would say, a very rigorous definition of God, which would need to be done if we were going forward to argue for the truth of the matter. Because I was only trying to show that this is a possible fruitful way, I just sort of used a basic understanding of the definition of God. And so the way I define God, his real definition was, to be God is to be the individual who is the sole creator, sole ruler, and only being worthy of worship. 
And so what I did in this definition was to take into account Borkham's understanding of divine identity, because I don't think I defined it before, but Borkham understood the notion of divine identity to center around these three features. God has his identity, but his identity is unique from all other created reality. And this identity is him being the sole creator, sole ruler, and only being who's worthy of worship. And because God has that specific identity, has these features, he is God. He is the being who we are to worship, and he is different from all other created reality. I took these sort of features and I placed them within the real definition of God. And I said, as I just noted, that to be God is to be the being who is the sole creator, sole ruler, and being who's only worthy of worship. And that was the definition of God. And so with this real definition in place, I then said, okay, let's now move on to the Christological idea that Borkham was trying to argue for, which was the idea that the New Testament writers included Jesus within the divine identity. Now, the way I tried to sort of do this was by including Jesus within the definition of God. So I expanded his real definition and I said, to be God is to be the sole creator, sole ruler, and only being worthy of worship, and to have the person of Jesus as a constituent. Can we pause and come back to that in a second? Of course, of course. I have questions about that, but I also wanted to just pause for a minute about this definition. It's a definition of the individual essence of God himself, not just of, uh, I guess, deity or godhood generally. But it it seems to me there might be a big problem with this because you say he has the uniquely identifying attributes of being the sole creator and the sole ruler, that is, ruler of the cosmos. But then if that's part of what it is to be God, then for God to exist, the cosmos would have to exist but then he wouldn't be free to not create, like most Christian theologians want to say, unless they're, I guess, pantheists or panentheists or something like that, where creation becomes kind of an aspect of God or like God's body or something. But most Christians want to say that God would have been free to either create or not. He didn't need anything. You know, he just would exist in perfect blessedness by himself. But, you know, he did freely choose to create So then, to put it in the popular lingo, there would be possible worlds where God doesn't create. Of course, the actual world God has created, but it looks like this would put a necessary link between God and the existence of the creation. Yeah, so the way I sort of would approach this issue is taking a more fine-grained definition, because I only gave sort of a basic definition. I think these objections could definitely be raised. But in sort of a fine-grained definition of this, I would probably say he's a sole creator of any universe that can or does exist. And so it's sort of this can aspect, saying that whatever universe exists, God is the creator of it. And so if a universe doesn't exist, then he is a being who could create, but he hasn't created yet. And so okay. it's just sort of saying... So sole creator and ruler over any cosmos that there is or could be... Something like that. Yeah, I guess you can get around it that way. By his essence, he would be a potential creator and and governor of a cosmos. Yes, that's exactly it. So it's just sort of this potentiality that he has. Um, But if the universe exists, then we can just say that potentiality is actualized. And so he is the sole creator of this universe. And so, yes. So it's just saying his definition prior to the creation of the universe would be in a potential sense saying that he's a sole creator of it if it does come into existence. It's just trying to say that anything that exists apart from God has been created by him. 
But obviously, this will now get a little bit difficult when you're trying to say, but well, Jesus exists apart from God. But it's just trying to say that any reality that's not part of the definition of God that exists has been created by him and he rules over him or over it. And so it's just trying to say that he is a sovereign creator and ruler of anything that exists apart from him and anything that's not part of what he is or his, his essence or definition. There's another problem that strikes me just looking at your definition here in the paper where you make it part of God's individual essence to be the only being, the only entity worthy of worship. What do you make of Revelation 5? You know, Revelation 4, you've got God on his throne in a heavenly vision, and that's the Father. I think you agree with that. And then in Revelation 5, they bring one who looks like a lamb who's been slain into the throne room. That's obviously the Son of God. And then they worship both of them, they worship God and they worship the risen and exalted Son of God. But then you don't think that those are the same entity. Yes. So I think this is why I didn't really, uh, aside from sort of space requirements, that I didn't sort of go deeper into the individual and sort of general distinction. So yes, if you were to interpret this definition solely in an individual sense, referring to God's individual essence. And it seems to be problematic for any other being because they wouldn't share the same individual essence as God. But if you do take in sort of this distinction into play, some of the terms or some of the features might be referring to God's individual essence and some might be referring to his general essence. It just really, it depends upon how the distinction sort of can be implemented within this. And so the way I sort of go with it is just saying, let's not at the moment use this notion of individual and and general essence, number one, because fine doesn't go into this distinction. But if we just say this is the essence of God, these attributes can play a part without it not fitting with sort of New Testament passages where worship is referred solely to the Father and not to others. And so I think when, yes, if you if I was to go f- sort of further and, and say, let's bring in this aspect of individual and general essence, then there will need to be sort of a further working out how this plays a part with the Son and, and the Holy Spirit as well, who Trinitarians will want to affirm as being worthy of worship. But just going with sort of what I wrote in the paper, I didn't really go into that distinction. And so I don't know necessarily if that objection would apply to Fine's um, understanding of essence. And just to clarify for our audience, many of whom are not as familiar with, you know, analytic metaphysics, just by definition, an individual essence is unshareable. It, it couldn't be the essence of two different things. It just is necessarily the essence of one individual, whereas a general essence on the face of it should be shareable. It's, it's usually understood to be a universal quality. So humanity yeah. is a general essence. But the essence of being Dr. Sijawati, if there is an essence like that, then that would be something that only you could have and nobody else, just in principle. Exactly, yes. Because the whole point of individual essence is to individuate the entity. And so if it was shareable, then you wouldn't be able to individuate the entities. You won't be able to pick them out in a unique manner. But we should be able to do that. And so the individual essence of an entity is simply the thing that allows us to individuate it and pick it out. And so it shouldn't have what makes it distinct as being shareable. But its general essence is shareable. And so if we go with Socrates, whatever makes Socrates Socrates is not shareable with another entity, such as, for example, Plato. But what makes Socrates a human, for example, which will be part of his general essence, is shareable with Plato and Aristotle and others as well. 
And so, yes, I, I, I do completely agree with that. And we should probably mention that a lot of philosophers are hostile to the notion of an individual essence. They think, you know, what makes Socrates an individual is just unanalyzable, or maybe it's that the humanity is in this portion of matter or something. So there are some metaphysicians who believe in general uh, or kind essences who totally don't believe in individual essences. But your mileage may vary uh, depending on what work you think needs to be done. As you said, yes. some, some do consider them individual essences to be necessary. Sometimes they're also called hexaities. Yeah, exactly. When the Trinity's podcast returns, how is all of this supposed to elucidate the relation between God and Jesus? Okay, so let's get to the part about how this is supposed to elucidate the relation between God and Jesus. What we see Borkham's famous term that he uses in his works and also his talks on this issue is that Jesus is included within the divine identity, that sentence. And he sort of says that's what the New Testament writers did. They included Jesus within the divine identity, given his resurrection and other things. And so I try to sort of make sense of that and say, well, what do we mean by that without falling into the numerical identity problems and the compositional problem? And I was trying to say, and the way I try to make sense of this was to say that Jesus is included within the real definition of God. And so if we were to define God, we wouldn't just define God with the features that I listed before, but we will also define God with Jesus as well. Jesus is included in that definition. And so if I was to ask you a what question, and I was to say, well, what is God or who is God? You would tell me that he's a sole creator, he's a sole ruler, he's the only being worthy of worship. But you'll also say that he, in some manner, has Jesus included within what he is, within that definition, within that answer that I would give or you would give. And so what I was trying to say here was that Jesus is included within the definition of God. And so we can only understand what God is by taking into account not just his unique identifying features, but also the person of Jesus as well. And I felt that this sort of fit with the New Testament framework with the person of Jesus and his inauguration of the kingdom. After this action, his death and resurrection, we then see God being defined in a way by Christ. Christ becomes part of what it means when we talk about God. God is not really independently spoken about without the person of Christ. This is not to say that he's now identical to Christ, but to say that Christ is in some way defined alongside him, that we understand God by understanding Christ. And so what I was trying to say here was there was a recognition now that Christ is within the definition of God. But this is problematic in a way, so sort of an objection that could be raised and I tried to tackle in my article, was, well, if Christ is included within the definition of God, and the definition, which is the essence of God, is a necessary thing for God, 
then how could that be so if Christ came into existence? How could he be included in the definition of God when he was in existing, let's say, six or 7,000 years ago? And so this is where my Trinitarian cards had to sort of come in. And I had to say, well, if we're correctly understanding this in sort of a more fine-grained fashion, it is the Son who is included within the definition of God. And so I would, and we'll probably speak about this in later conversations, that I would take God to be identified as the Father. And so within the definition of the Father, you find the Son. And so what we had here was then with the New Testament writers is that they now recognized that that entity, the Son that exists within the definition of, of God, is to be understood as the person of Jesus. And so Jesus was recognized as that entity, but it wasn't like Jesus was just included within the definition of God at that moment. It was more an epistemic state that they entered into where they said, aha, now we understand that Christ is within the definition of God. He is that entity that is within that definition of God. Now, obviously, I'm not saying this is the psychological sort of process that they went through. I do not believe that was so. But let's say we're taking this possible scenario. This could be a way to understand it, that Christ is within the definition of God. But what we really mean by that is the son who became incarnate in the person of Jesus was in the definition of God. And so we can only understand God correctly if we understand Christ as well. Christ is part of the definition of God in that specific sense. You call Jesus a contingent entity who came into existence at a specific point in time because by Jesus you mean, I guess, the divine human composite. Yeah. Since that thing only came into existence in the first century, uh, you want to say it's the eternal son who is part of the definition of God. Um, yes. I have a couple questions about this. One is, insofar as I understand real definitions, I thought that the elements of a real definition would be either a property or a proposition, but Jesus or the Son of God wouldn't be a property or a proposition. So it just doesn't sound right that he's part of a definition. I mean, a definition is a kind of analysis or something, but you've added this to the, you know, Bauckham inspired definition, you know, by God, we mean this individual who's the only creator and governor of any cosmos there is, and who's the only one worthy of worship. And also who is in part the son? What I would need to sort of point people towards who are going to read this article is, is a footnote. <laughs> Maybe it's good that you don't put important things in footnotes. So that's a reminder for myself. But I did sort of try to field this objection and say that what correctly it would be the proposition or the propositions about Jesus that are part of this real definition. So it wouldn't be the physical human Jesus. But just sort of to speak in a more coarse-grained fashion, I was saying that it was Jesus who was included within this real definition. But it's actually propositions about him. So the propositions would be the things that compose the definition of God. Um, but these propositions are about things within wider reality. And so it's about the person of Christ. And so sort of in a shorthand fashion, I say Jesus is included within this real definition. So it's the proposition that the Son of God exists or something? Yeah, so it's the propositions about Jesus um, that is included within it. So you can sort of cash it out to say the real definition is that God is the sole creator, sole ruler, and being only worthy of worship, and he generated 
the eternal son or something like that. And this eternal son became incarnate in the person of Jesus. But I sort of, again, spaced requirements and and sort of not to sort of uh, get too <laughs> drowned in sort of a definition. I just put it in a shorthand fashion that it was the person of Jesus. But there'll be ways to cash it out that will make sense in a sort of more clear definitional fashion that it has these unique features. And it could also be that God ha- generated this person the son and that's part of his definition and i think a lot of trinitarians will want to say that about the father that the father is understood to be the father because he generated the son eternally generated him and so in a way the father is identified as the father because of this generative action of the son and so that is part of his real definition and so if we were to go with that sort of way of cashing out this notion we would say that it's this generative action of the son that is part of his real definition. I think I do in part speak about that, but I don't go in deeper, um, in a deeper sense into it in the article itself. Okay. So it fits along with this idea, which as far as I know, goes back to origin that the terms father and son are correlative terms. And so just kind of by definition, if there's a father, there has to be a son. If there's a son, there has to be a father. So the father just has to, uh, be the father of somebody but, you know, it still doesn't sound right to me to say that we're going to tell you who God is, that is to say, who the Father is, and part of telling you that is, hey, there's this Son. It just sounds like a relation. It's not intrinsic to God, is a different way to put it. I thought a kind definition, or a, sorry, an individual definition would be, would be intrinsic, but I guess you're saying this would be yeah. like a necessary relational feature? It will really depend what you mean by intrinsic. Um, And so I I would sort of take intrinsic to mean that an entity has this property or feature independent of its surroundings. So it has it um, independent of its surroundings. And if its surroundings were to change, it would still have this specific property or feature. Now, I think the majority of people who sort of argue for Trinitarianism would say that the father would be in this relation with the son, even if the world was different. And so it sort of seems to be an intrinsic relation that he he has to the son. And so it's not dependent upon the surroundings. If the surroundings were to change, then he wouldn't have this relation that he's standing in with the son. And so it would be intrinsic to God, but it also would enable it to be part of his definition. And I do agree with you, it does sort of harken back to origin, and you do find it argued for in the fourth century by Alexander of Alexandria and Athanasius of Alexandria and others who sort of tried to say if we, you know, against Arius and other individuals who came after him, that if we are to correctly understand the father, then he has to be in this eternal correlative relation with the son, or we shouldn't call him father. And so it's not a contingent relation that he's in, but a necessary relation, but also not just a necessary relation, but a definitional relation, one that is part of his essence. Because if you remember, I was saying sort of there's this breaking of necessity in essence. But what I'm trying to say to you is it is necessary, but it's necessary because it is part of his essence, because it's part of his definition. And so if we are to correctly understand God, then we are to understand that Christ in some fashion plays a part in this definition. And I would, again, try and just highlight the point that it seems to be the way that the New Testament writers were operating with. But if we are sort of trying to analyze this with our sort of analytic theological lenses on, then if this is the notion of definition, and let's say we're assuming the veracity of this Finian notion of, of essence, 
And it seems to be the case that when we understand God, the New Testament writers are saying, we understand him to be the father of Christ. And so then is that part then of his definition, his real definition? Well, if it is, then it's a necessary thing. And so you seem to have sort of this argument that does sort of support what Athanasius and others were saying. But again, I think it sort of goes into deeper waters that you'll need to argue for this. But I, I am trying to be quite clear and say, well, this isn't exactly the framework at all that the New Testament writers were working with. But if we use this framework that's utilized in other areas of contemporary metaphysics, we seem to capture what they were trying to say. And we seem to capture what Borkham in a way was trying to say as well. When we use this notion of essence and try and say that Christ in a way is included within this definition of God. And that's what we mean when we say that he's included within the divine identity. It's certainly trying to, I guess, kind of squeeze a lot out of that term, Father. And I'm suspicious of it because you have earlier mainstream Christian theologians, a little, just a little bit earlier than Origen, people like Justin and Tertullian, who think that eternally God has within himself this logos, but that's just you know his thought or mind or something, his rationality. But then when it's time to create, God somehow expresses this, and now there's another, sometimes they say, another God who exists alongside God and through whom God creates. So if it's just an obvious truth that for God to be Father just logically implies the existence of a son, these guys just don't get it. Like, they seem to think you could talk about the Father before there was a son, you know, which is what we do. You know, I say my father grew up in California. But he wasn't my father then, but it's the same guy who later on has children. So we could say the father existed by himself before anything else did, which is what these earlier mainstream guys think. And then it doesn't imply that at that time or in eternity that he has a son. So I don't know. I'm, I'm dubious of these origin arguments, but... Um, I would think, yeah, I would agree with you that these writers, an interpretation that someone can give is, is of them having this sort of specific position. Um, but I think if we are going with this idea of definition, then someone's going to need to define God, and then someone's going to need to understand where this notion of the Father fits in. Does it fit into his real definition, or is it something that's outside of his real definition? But things are only outside of your real definition if they're irrelevant for us understanding what this entity is. If I'm defining what this entity is, I'm going to bring into take into account all of the relevant things that enable me to understand what this entity is. And I do believe that a lot of these writers were trying to say, well, we need to correctly understand God, but we correctly understand him as the father. It seems to be part of what he is. And sort of, I think, sort of in the latter half of the fourth century, you do see this debate going on about is the father always the father or not? Or did he become the father at some point in time when he created Christ or created the son? And so you sort of see this with the Eunomius and, and the Cappadocians. It does seem to be a back and forth on this issue. But I think if we're trying to be clear and use analytic philosophy and try and get sort of as precise as possible, we're going to use this notion of essence. We're going to use this notion of definition. And then we're going to try and have to place this proposition's about the father or about God being the father somewhere. 
And I would hesitate to place it outside of his definition. I seem, in a way, it seems to be the definition of God of what we find in the New Testament is that he is the father. That seems to be a revealed knowledge that's given to us, that he is the father. But then if it is part of his definition, then I can't see how he could have become the father because then he wouldn't have that definition or his definition would have changed, which obviously is impossible given the necessity of this understanding of essence. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I ask Dr. Sijuwadi if his proposal implies that ancient Jews did not understand who God is. Dr. Sijawadi, would your suggestion here have the implication that, say, a Jewish person in the year 200 BC doesn't understand who God is? Suppose they believe in a coming Messiah, but they don't know anything about this eternal Son of God, but they do believe there's a unique creator and governor of the world, this one called Yahweh, who can be referred to as Father, but by that they don't mean Father of the eternal Son. Would that be an implication that they can't refer to God or that they don't know who God is? Oh, not at all. I would never be rude enough to say that about individuals like that. But I would definitely say that we have a development in our understanding of what God is, who God is over time, specifically when we have the revelation that's given to us by Christ. But also, I think we have a further development in our understanding of this revelation over time. And so that means we become more precise in the way that we understand God's real definition. And so at the beginning, maybe the real definition was understood in a more coarse-grained manner than it was a thousand or two thousand years later, specifically when we have divine revelation given to us, that we can now say, actually, it seems to be the case that this is how we can understand God better. Well, it's not just that he's the sole creative rule and being worthy of worship, but he also, in a way, generated the sun. And so what I'm trying to say to you is that there's a development in our understanding of God, of his revelation that he gives to us over time. And so definitions can become more precise over time, but not precise in that we change the definition, but that we can correctly understand it better as sort of our conceptual knowledge of these terms improve, or also that we're given revelation by God, which I believe was given to the world in the person of Christ. And so we can understand God better after that revelation than if we didn't have that revelation at all. So they understand a partial definition of God, and that's enough to refer to God, but it's just not a complete definition, something like that? It's sort of, you can think about water and this idea of H2O. So if, if you sort of see the literature on essence with uh, Kripke and Putnam, it's sort of, you see this idea that our understanding of water improved over time, our definition of water improved over time, as our knowledge of science improved, and we we're able to analyze it. And so the people that were referring to water before these sort of analytical tools were in place, were able to correctly refer to water, 
but they weren't referring to it as in the more precise sense after we had these analytical tools given to us. And so I'll sort of say in a similar way, it is a true definition that these Jews were giving about God. They weren't saying things that were untruths. But what I would say is that over time, as Revelation came and also our understanding of Revelation improved, we were able to understand these definitions better. And we were able to define God in a more precise sense and take into account all these things that are relevant to him. But obviously, prior to this revelation, things about generation, about the son, about Christ would seem to be irrelevant. And so they wouldn't be part of the real definition if they even knew of these terms. But after the revelation was given to us, and after our conceptual understanding of the revelation improved over time, we were then able to define God in a more precise manner, in an analogous sense to how scientists were able to do that with water and other substances as well. So if you back up and just look at the big picture, you know, in my published critique of Bauckham, I said, you know, basically, it doesn't mean this or this. I see problems either way. And one part of the dilemma was, is it just collapsing Jesus and God, saying they're really the same one? Or the other, is he saying that Jesus is a part of God? I mean, just at first glance, it kind of looks like you're seizing the second horn, although it's not a part exactly. It's it's uh, included within the real definition how is that different from saying that Jesus is a part of God or the Son? Sorry. Yeah. So the distinction that needs to be made is what we really mean by part here. So what I'm again in a more sort of fine-grained manner is saying that a proposition about the Son is included within the real definition of God. What I'm not saying is that the person of Jesus, the the physical human was included in a way as a part of God, which would be a mereological sort of formulation, which we see in Borkham, where God is composed of parts, which includes the individual, the son who became incarnate in the person of Christ. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that the propositions about God and about Christ are together in a collection. So things about God have also things about Christ included within them. And so it's more to do with our definition of God is that we will include the person of Christ within it. And so if we are understanding things about God, we can only correctly understand them if we also take into account the person of Christ. But that's not to say that God in a way is built up by Christ in a mereological sense. Mm-hmm. I would not hold to that specifically given my Trinitarian views, which I don't identify God in that sort of fashion. And I think we'll speak about this in, in later conversations. Yeah. Now, I mean, in the New Testament, certainly you could say that God is referred to by way of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the son of God. God is said to be the father of Jesus and to be the God of Jesus. The father is the God of Jesus. That's understood to be that Yahweh is the God of Jesus. But of course, that's all just on the face of it consistent with Jesus having come into existence, you know, at the time of his conception what about the New Testament specifically makes you think that this is, you know, truly definitional to God, part of who God is, so that if God exists eternally, then he has to eternally be related to the Son? So I would probably just highlight what Borkham has argued himself of why the New Testament writers included Christ within the, the identity of God, because Christ exemplified the features that are unique to God alone. And so Christ was sole creator or he was a creator in a way or he was the instrument in which god utilized to create the world um, and he was ruler or he's acclaimed as ruler over all of reality and he's also worshipped and so i think you see people like larry, larry hurtado arguing for this in a very good sense 
that seems to be that by Christ being worshipped in a sacrificial sense, in a similar way that the Father or God is, it seems to be that they are acting as Christ is God in a specific fashion. And so Christ seemed to exemplify the unique identifying attributes of God. And so that means then, if he is doing that, but then this is supposed to be the distinguishing factor between creator and creation, then how could Christ exemplify these attributes, yet he not be in some manner existing with the creator? If he was a creation, then it doesn't seem to be the case that we can utilize this methodology that Borkham gives. Because Borkham is really trying to show how there was a clear distinction in Judaic thought about creator and creation. And the way in which we're able to sort of draw this dividing line was because God is the only being who can create, or he's a creator, he's a sole ruler, and he's the being only worthy of worship. And any being that does not have these features cannot be understood to be God, and so they fall into the category of creation. Mm -hmm. This is something that's always puzzled me about, you know, attempts to take the very few Christ-creator passages that are understood as Christ being involved in creation in the New Testament and arguing for the deity or the divinity of Christ, because in fact, you you just put it this way that on this inter on those interpretations, God creates through Jesus. But now, this quality being the one through whom God created, that's not a unique feature of God. That rules out being God, right? God can't so, be the one through whom God created. God is just the ultimate source of creation. He's not like the next to ultimate source. Yes. So I think this is where sort of my Trinitarian or my, my sort of interpretation of Trinitarianism will come in. And so I would definitely say that the New Testament, or if we're even going with this Borkham line of thinking, we can't establish, let's say, the homoousion in a sort of clear and you know non-contestable fashion that, oh, okay, by Christ exemplifying these unique identifying attributes, he must be of the same nature, of the same substance, homo usios with the Father. I don't think it's clear, slap bang, sort of, you know, close the books on this issue. I do think that there needs to be other conceptual things in play here for us to have that interpretation or for us to be able to hold to that position. And so what I would say is that I do believe Borkham was successful in saying there was an early high Christology in that Christ was taken as divine, but what does divinity mean? Now, I would say that I do believe that it was the fourth century that there was a settlement of this issue. Not that the fourth century introduced it, but the fourth century was able to help us understand what we mean by divinity when it comes to Christ. And so I would say that I think Borkham is successful in, in saying that there wasn't this purely human being that the New Testament writers were trying to put forward. It seemed to be that Christ was divine, but I don't think they were explicit about what type of divinity we are talking about. And I think you see this historically taking place because over then the next three to four and five centuries, we have sort of a conceptual struggle about what we mean for the sun to be divine. And so then we have in Nicaea in 325 and then 381, Constantinople, we have a definition of what we mean by Christ being divine. We mean that he's homoousios, with the Father. So he's divine in the same way that the Father is divine. But I do think we have divinity in the New Testament, but we don't have a clear conceptualization of divinity up until the fourth century.
the divinity which is in the New Testament doesn't require being the ultimate source of the universe, but just having been involved somehow? Yes. So I would, I mean, in my specific Trinitarian view, I would take the Father to be God in, and I use normally the term, the nominal sense. And what I mean is that he bears the name God, but he bears the name God because he is the ultimate source of everything else. And so Christ isn't the ultimate source of everything else, yet he is still divine. And so I try and break the link between being divine and being ultimate. I think ultimacy or fundamentality is relevant to the idea of God as a name, but I don't believe it's relevant to God as a predicate when we're using it in sort of a divinity sense. I think to be divine just means you have certain attributes, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you are the ultimate thing. I think that's only the Father alone. Um, in the New Testament, I would say throughout church history as well. But I think that, again, that might be a conversation for another time. Dr. Sijiwadi, thanks for talking with us. Thank you very much, Dale. I really appreciated the questions and I really enjoyed my time. Thank you so much. Next week, I'll have another conversation with Dr. Sijiwadi, this time about what he calls the monarchy of the father. This week's thinking music has been the track Cardboard Engineering by Jesse Spillane. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.